All right, let's uh, do this. If you have a ribbon thing, if you have it in Romans 8 where it was last night, that's where we want you to leave it there. If you don't have one in Romans 8, put a marker in Romans chapter 8 and then turn to our text. Our text is Hebrews chapter 12. I will tell you in advance in a little while when I say, let's turn to Romans chapter 8, it's almost over. So that'll be a few minutes from now, but uh, it will be over at some time. So just believe me on that. Hebrews chapter 12. All right, we've only got one little bitty baby night left. And uh, this morning and this afternoon, I was trying to determine... uh, what portions we're going to do. And so uh, I believe with God's leadership uh, tonight, uh, we're going to cover this. And then in a minute, I'll tell you what we're going to cover uh, tomorrow night as we're reading the text. So if you're able, I'd ask you to stand with me. We stand to give reverence and honor to the eternal, infallible, inerrant. It is the perfect preserved word of God. We are so blessed and grateful that we are not looking for the Bible. We have the Bible. We have every word that God wants us to have. Praise his name. We do. Hebrews chapter 12, verse number one. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, Let's just stop there, and I'll just go ahead and tell you, we're not going to cover that. And it is so good. But uh, after work, what I did, the work I did and so on, I, we're not going to cover that. But just to let us know, there is all kinds of witness that we have in our history that tells us you're doing the right thing. This great cloud of witnesses is observing the athletic event, and we know it's the race. We also know it's Christianity they're observing. And the witnesses, you could say they're all the Hebrew chapter 11 people, the Hall of Fame people, some people have called them, and that it's them, they're our witnesses, and that they are actually watching us. It doesn't matter to me, I used to have a disagreement with people that said they can see you. I go, no, they can't see me. My dad's been in heaven 10 years. My mom's been in heaven, you know, eight, nine months, and uh, they can't see me. Well, how do you know? Well, I was thinking if my mom could see me, my dad see me, their heart would be broken all the time. They go, what's wrong with him? What's he doing that? And so then someone else said, well, God could allow them to see you and not see the wrong, the bad, to see the blessings. And could God do that? And you can't argue with them. Say, well, God could if he wanted to. It just doesn't say in the Bible he does. So I'm not altogether sure they see me. But here's what I do know. My dad and my mom and all the heroes of chapter 11, their life is a witness to me. And so the great cloud of witnesses are those people that are already going to heaven, that their testimony is a witness to me. And I can, we can hang in there. Amen? So anyway, that's as far as we're going to do on that. All right, here we go. Wherefore, seeing we're also compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Tonight, we're going to work on the middle part of verse 12. Let us lay aside every weight. Tomorrow night, my intent is, and the sin that does so easily beset us. We'll do that tomorrow night. Uh, And so I'm looking forward to what we're going to do tonight. So let's have prayer and again, and let's just get our hearts ready for what God has to speak to our hearts about. Let's pray. Our great God, I do love you. I'm so grateful to know for certain that you love me individually and you love us. You love the whole world. You proved it. You manifested it. Thank you, Christ. Thank you, God. So thank you for your church and you started it. It's your work and that I get to be here tonight. 
thank you. I pray that tonight you would have your way with me. Help me. Give me unction, utterance, power. Help my thinking and my thoughts that I could get across, communicate your truth. I pray. I thank you for these people that come on a Monday night. Thank you, Lord. I pray that their hearts are open and ready to hear. And that if anyone's here that's not yet born again, I'm so thankful you're giving them another opportunity to be forgiven of their sin. Thank you. I pray they'll say yes to you. Oh, I'm looking forward to what you're going to do. So we're looking forward to when we get to see you, Jesus. And it's in your precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So yesterday we talked about the metaphor that in Hebrews 12, the Colosseum and this cloud of witnesses, they're witnessing a race. The metaphor is they are witnessing Christianity. But in Christianity, it's going to take effort. It's going to take energy. You could even use the word sweat. It does say it's a run. Amen? It helps me so much. It, you know, I, I know some of you all, I knew, but it helps me that if you respond, because then I go, oh, they do know. Sorry, I just have some kind of mental block up there. So we are in a race that it guarantees discomfort, and it's going to take effort, energy, and even sweat to do it. Oh, that touches my heart. That is so good. Thank you. And so, tonight, we're going to talk about, let us lay aside every weight and the sin. So, I'll just go ahead and say it now. I used to, in my head, I used to think the weight and the sin were identical. But the conjunction and doesn't mean that they are identical. The sin and the weight could be two distinct different things, and tonight I'm going to explain that. And so, here's the deal. Let us lay aside every weight. So, what would be a weight? Every weight, if I'm in this race, I'm in this Christianity, let us lay aside every hindrance that would prevent me from making progress. Does somebody act like you know what that means and say amen? So, I'm supposed to make progress, so anything that would hinder me would be a weight that would keep me from making the progress that the Lord would want me to make. And so that would be a weight. But because it's a hindrance, or it doesn't mean that it it has to be wicked or sinful. For instance, uh, there is a hindrance that, that causes people to not make the progress they ought to. And yet it's not wicked at all. It's not sinful. It's a J-O-B. You know, Job. So if you've got a Job, uh, I love it that they're spelled the same. If you have a job, you're, it's, we have to have a job. In fact, a person that doesn't provide for his family is worse than a... How do you all know that stuff? But anyway, it's, you're supposed to provide. It's to provide for your family. You're going to have to work. you got to go to work. If you're going to go to work, well, you probably need some physical strength and energy to do it. So you need to get some food so you can have energy so you can go to work. And if you're going to do a proper job of work, you probably need to lay down and rest. So it would be, be good to have a place to lay down and rest, have a place where you can eat food so you can have the energy and the rest and the strength to go do the work. There's nothing nothing wrong with having a job. You need to have a job. In our society today, and ever since Adam and Eve left the garden, you're going to have to do some kind of work if you're going to survive. So there's nothing wrong with a job. But is it true? Is it true that a job can becomes so overwhelming that it keeps you from making the progress 
in Christianity that you're supposed to make. Amen? What do you mean? Well, some of you, your job, you're so tired that you don't read the Bible. Oh, no, no, you, you, you've got time to do other stuff, but you just don't have time to read the Bible. Is everybody with me? You're too tired. So, since we're talking about it, some people just, well, I just, I, I know, I know we go to church, but I can't go to church as much as you guys think I should go to church because I, I, Sunday I've got, I've got lots of things to do. I don't, I'm just saying the Holy Bible, they met on the first day of the week. And you're not supposed to forsake the meeting on the first day of the week. I didn't make it up. It's like in the Bible. But so many people go, well, I've got a job and I, just, I can't, I, I've got, and you know, I've got. And some people give more, watch this, they give more energy, more time, and more commitment to their job than they do their Christianity. Well, I just can't believe you want to put the church in front of my job. Well, what we want to do, we want to put Christ in front of your job. And we want to put his word in front of your job. What's the Bible say? Let us lay aside every weight. If your job becomes a hindrance to you making progress in the race, so you're giving too much time, energy, and effort, commitment to your job, so, well, I don't want to get fired. Well, you ought to work 40 hours a week. Oh, no, they want me to work 80 hours a week. Well, they're out of their mind. No, they want me to work 60 hours a week. Well, they're still out of their mind. No, 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 let's stop. Since we're talking about it, we might as well be honest. Are there emergencies? Do emergencies happen? Are you glad someone's in the emergency room if you have an emergency? You're glad that a doctor's there on Sunday if you have an emergency? Duh! A fireman? Yeah! Factories have emergencies. Get behind, can't do it. Yes. But here's what I want to say. You that are caregivers, nurses, doctors, firemen, policemen, we want your availability on the Lord's Day. We still need it. But it ought not be a life that you can never be participant in the Lord's church. God never intended, no matter how much help and doctoring we need, God never intended someone to work so much that they can't give attention to the house of God. Never. So you just say, okay, I I can work one Sunday a month. I can work. Is everybody with me? But if you're in a factory and they go, oh, no, you're working seven days a week. Seven days a week, we're behind. We're going to have to work seven days a week. I understand. Emergencies happen. But when it's going on for 12 months, that's not an emergency. That's poor management. Sorry. Well, I know it's poor management. What can I do about it? You can go to the manager and say, this is poor management. We shouldn't have to work seven days a week for 12 months. Well, I don't. You can say that. And if you're the kind of employee that I think we ought to be, that they should say, if you only work five days a week, we want you more than we want them that work seven days a week. Is everybody with me? What, no, no. Do you quit your job? No, but what, here's what we can do. Lay aside every weight. We just say, God, I'm not going to let this job interrupt my Christianity and me making progress with you. I'm going to put my job aside, and I'm going to say, you do come first. You can say the word family. There's nothing wrong with family. God invented it. It was Adam and Eve, not Steve. It's a family. God invented it. We have babies, hallelujah. And they cost in every way. But we don't let the family get in front of our commitment, our relationship, our time and effort that we give to Jesus Christ. I don't know if you're familiar with this or not, but Jesus said it. It's in red letters that you're going to have to love me more 
than your mom and dad, your wife, your children, your own self. He's someone that said it. And so what do you mean? I'm supposed to get rid of my family? No, but you do. If you're doing it correctly, according to the Bible, if you're doing it correctly, you say, family, you do not come first. Christ comes first in this family. What Christ wants and what Christ desires, what the Bible teaches us, that's going to be our hub. That's our primary intent in this family. And your children will know when you're putting God first and when you're putting you first. They know the difference. Will they, will they aggravate you with it? Will they bark at that or balk at that? Yeah. Because they're just as fleshly as we are. But they will respect you and they will understand. I don't agree with mom and dad on all this stuff, but I know why they're doing it. They believe that's what God would have them do. Not just what the preacher would have them do. It's what God would have them do. Somebody say amen. Lay aside. Your pastor, you probably are aware of this. He likes to golf a little bit. I like to golf a lot. I'm not good either. I mean, he's, I'm not good. I don't know if he's good or not. But I enjoy it. But golf doesn't come first. I was showing them some pictures, and they knew my mother, and my mother died just back in December 31st, and they knew her, and I showed a picture of us fishing, and Mom, we have a stringer of fish there, and Miss Laura said, I didn't know you liked to fish. I go, well, I do. I do if I catch them. <laughs> but uh, nothing wrong with fishing. Having a bass boat, good for you. There's nothing wrong with that. Whatever hobby you have, if it's not sinful and wicked, biblically, if you can't find the evil, that it's evil, you can enjoy it. But it never comes first. My wife, she has one hobby that I know of. She might have some she hadn't told me yet. But her hobby, and she's a blessed woman, her hobby is her spiritual gift. Isn't that precious? Her hobby is shopping. Her spiritual gift is shopping. Shopping for Jesus. There's nothing wrong with shopping. Unless you keep missing church, honey. You can't keep missing church. There's nothing wrong with shopping. Nothing wrong with having a boat or a camper, cabin. But if that gets in the way that you can't give demissions because of all this stuff you have, you can't be involved in church activity and church ministry because you're so busy with your toys out there. Does everybody hear me? They're not wicked, they're not sinful, but you've got to lay them aside. They don't come first. Jesus Christ and his word come first. Amen? Amen. Absolutely. So we could go on and on and go down the line. School. There's nothing wrong with education. In fact, I love it. I think we ought to be educated. I think you ought to get all the education you can get. But it doesn't come before Jesus. Amen. These could, watch, they could become weights that hinder us from making progress. We need to be willing to lay them aside. So I want you to notice the verse again. I want to make an emphasis of this. Let us lay aside. Did anybody notice which weights we're supposed to lay aside? Would you say it one more time? That's a true statement, isn't it? Anything that would hinder me from making progress, even if it's not wicked, I've got to be on guard to say, there's nothing wrong with golf. But right now, I don't need to golf. I need to. There's nothing wrong with fishing, but right now, there's nothing wrong, but right now I can't go fishing. I need to. Is everybody hearing this? Wow. So, I want to, I want to, Focus on this from another angle altogether, completely different. A weight. Um, I told you last night that I uh, ran a marathon. 
when I was preparing for the marathon, I remember when I was in high school that I saw the track team wearing weights on their ankles. They're walking around in school, weights on. And I told Nancy when I got ready for the marathon, I go, I'm going to get some of them weights. I'm going to get some weights and put on my feet, and I'm going to go run with the weights on. Wow. So I did. I bought five-pound weights for each leg. And I told Nancy, I'm going to go run two miles with these weights on. When I come back, I take off the weights. My legs will be like feathers. I will float around the room like Peter Pan. It's going to be awesome. So I put them on. Took off running. And every step I took, this weight that was strapped on my ankles with the Velcro strip was doing this. On each ankle. Every step. And it took me about a block to go, my ankles are going to be bloody if I run two miles with... I ain't doing that. I stopped in the middle of the sidewalk, undid the Velcro, laid them on the side of the sidewalk, and said, I'm not wearing those. I'm going to run. If they're there when I come back, I'll pick them up. If they're not there, someone else can have them. They were there. I picked them up. They're in my closet right now. I can take you. My closet, if you look in your head and you look in that little corner down there, two five-pound weights, blue I've never worn them again. And I'm, I never even thought about, uh, duh, the track team did not run with them on. They walked around with them on. And I never thought that, hey, dummy, you could just walk through the day with them. I just thought, well, if I can't run in them, I ought not use them. I tell you, I got a lot of alphabet trouble up here in my head, Okay. So, we were in California when that happened, and I have seen the ocean at this particular time. I'd seen the ocean twice. I touched the ocean with my finger twice, two different places, but I'd never actually been down there. I went to the ocean. I was there on the beach, but I never, like, messed around in the beach. And so, here's what I told Nancy. I'm going to go to the ocean. I'm going to run in the beach. You know the main reason I wanted to run on the beach? I'm, I'm honest. I'm just being open with you. Because everybody that runs on the beach looks good. <laughs> Anytime you see them, you're going, whoa, they looking good. Look at that. I'm serious. I thought I look good, and I'm going to go run two miles on the beach. had no idea. I drove down there, and you follow the signs to the beach, pull up into a parking place. And then the water... The ocean is not right there by the parking lot. It's down there. You have to walk through the sand to get to the water. And the sand is not flat. It's kind of lumpy, rolly. And when you're walking in it, your your feet flop and, you, and the sand is bouncing up. I had no idea how hard it is to walk in sand. It never dawned on me it might be a little difficult. And then when you get down to where you're going to go, your shoes are full of sand already. So I sat down, emptied my shoes out, brushed my socks off and everything, put them back on. And so here's what I did know, is that down there by the water, it's kind of a sheen-looking thing, and it's, it's almost like pavement. It's like sidewalk almost. It's hard. You can run on that. So I set my timer thing to run a mile out and a mile back. And I took off running. Never thought about it. Never thought about it. I'm running away. I'm running, running. And all of a sudden, the water started coming. Whoa. <laughs> I never even thought that your socks might get wet. So I had to keep dodging the water, going back and forth. When I got done that day, I made a promise. I will never run on the beach again. I don't know if I look good or not. No one told me I did. No one said, hey, come here. You were looking good. No one said it. Mercy. I was telling that story in Tacoma, Washington, 
after the church, after it was over, the man came up to me and he goes, hey, Brother Dave, I'm the track coach at our high school, and I take our track team to the beach every year two times, and they run on the beach. Well, good for you. I said, so you mean they all run down there where it's hard and packed down? Oh, no. We run in the sand. Well, that's ridiculous. You'll twist an ankle, twist a knee, you get hurt. He goes, oh, no, 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 it's good for him. He said, it makes them lift their legs higher. Well, awesome. He said, no, 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 it builds every muscle that has to do with running. The muscles in the toes and the feet and the ankles, the shins, the calves, the knees, the thighs, the, the glutes. It, it builds everything. It, it's good for your core. He said, it's awesome. I said, how far do you make him run? He said, two miles. So before church, just out of the blue, David Spicer, where are you? He moved. You, were you over there? You were Okay, my brain was over there. So David Spicer, we were just talking before church. Anyway, somehow or another it came up that he ran in the sand in Florida. He was doing a triathlon. He must be awesome. He said, he ran in the sand. I said, you didn't run, you ran in the sand. He said, running in the sand is hard. Oh, you got that right. I can't even walk in the sand. I don't want to run in the sand. He said, it's hard, but I was training for a triathlon, and I ran in the sand. I said, did you run far? He goes, I don't know, two miles maybe. I went, Duh. Could you imagine? Let's think about that. If you ran in the sand, and then two days later you were at the track, and it's flat, and it's smooth, and it's, your cleats catch in the turf, don't you think it might be able to run a little better, stronger? Last more energy, more, is it right with me? Running in the sand is horrible. But it could be beneficial. So here's the angle I want to look at this about the weights. I'm certain there are times that our coach, I'm not the one that made up the metaphor, that our coach would have us run in the sand. Why? Because he hates us? Because he wants to build our core. He wants to build every muscle for our race, for our Christianity. Is everybody hearing me? He says, let us lay aside every weight. I'll just tell you, if I'm running in the sand, that's enough weight hindrance for me. Everybody with me? Wait, 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 wait Brother Dave, you're messing up. Because you just said that our coach might have us running in the sand, and sand could be a hindrance to our run. Is that true? But I just said I'm certain that the coach occasionally has us run in the sand. Just, just listen, I want to give you some for instance. Do you, does anybody remember the word race means that it could be strenuous? Effort, energy. Uh, guaranteed discomfort. Does anybody remember? Okay. Those who follow God throughout all of Scripture... New Testament and Old are not immune or protected from disappointment or tragedy or sorrow or persecutions. From the very first family through the entire Old Testament into the New Testament, we see illustration after illustration where God's people are being persecuted, where they're being going through difficulties and trials. Amen? Yeah. It's no different in the New Testament. It started with John the Baptist. Our Savior even went through persecution. If the world hate you, you know it hated me before it hated you. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. 
Matthew says this, For Herod had laid hold on John, John the Baptist, and bound him, put him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife. Then it says, He sent and beheaded John in the prison. What was John's crime? What was John doing? He's running his race. He's doing right. He's in prison, then he's beheaded. Stephen, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up, said, Fasten into heaven, then cried out with a loud voice, and they cast him out of the city and stoned him. What was Stephen doing? Preaching, preaching the truth. Saul was consenting unto Stephen's death. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. They were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Everybody with me? What were they doing? They were just trying to run the race and do it right. We got to get this in our head. I say they're running in the sand. Does God know they're in the sand? Yes. He's well aware. He's not on vacation. He's not asleep. He knows his people are being persecuted. They're going through trial. He knows that. He knows they're in the sand. Amen? So this. About that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hand to vex certain of the church, and he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And then there came certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium and persuaded the people, having, listen to this, having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city, supposing he had been dead. He's stoned. He wasn't dead. The multitudes rose up together against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ran off their clothes and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. What was Paul and Silas doing? The work of God. The best they can. They're in the race. They're trying to make progress. And now they are in the sand. Mercy. This moved me when I wrote this verse down for this particular sermon. The chief captain, this is a different event. The chief captain commanded Paul to be brought into the castle and examined him by scourging. He's going to ask him some questions, but he's going to scourge him while he's doing it. Why? What is this? What's going on? What's the purpose of all this? To what end is the coach having us in this kind of sand? Well, in Timothy it says, endure hardness as a good soldier. Why? That he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. I don't know if you remember part of the metaphor is that we are runners. We are also soldiers. Everybody with me? Why am I in the sand? Uh, mm, He wants me to please him who has chosen me to be a soldier. He doesn't want me to get entangled with the affairs of this life. Tonight, for the next several minutes, I'm going to give you illustration about, and I'm going to do it from our family, our personal family, about when we have been in the sand. I'm telling you to illustrate to you God, being the captain, knows we're in the sand. Now listen, when I'm getting ready to tell you, I am not trying to compare our sand with your sand. I'm not trying to do that. I'm not trying to say, well, look how bad we've got. Look at what we've done. Look what we went through. I'm not trying to puff us up at all. I'm not trying to be comparing. I'm not trying to get you to come by and say, oh, let me tell you how bad it was for us. That's not my intent. My intent is for you and I to see the awareness that we do run in the sand. Now, hear me. Hear me well. Listen. If you are not in the sand right now, that means you will be in the future. 
And I hate to tell you this. If you're not in the sand right now, that might mean you just came out of it. But the sand, some people might call it like sandpaper. Some people might call it a chisel or a grinder that God is perfecting us. Anybody with me? Now hear me. If you're in the sand right now, I want you to know that I'm sorry. I personally, I'm, I'm sorry that you're in the sand. I don't, I hate it for you. It's uncomfortable. It's not nice. It's, 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 it's horrible. Well, Brother Dave, I thought the coach put us in the sand. I know, but the sand is uncomfortable. It's horrible. You're not going, this is so cool. Your heart is broken. You could be full of sorrow. You could be discouraged. You're in the sand and you're going, how long is this going to last? If you're in the sand right now, friend, I'm real, I'm serious. I'm sorry. I will tell you, if you're not in the sand, as life goes along, if Christ doesn't come back, every one of us in this room will be in the sand someday. Nineteen eighty-eight. My wife Nancy was in a pickup truck. She was driving. My two daughters were with her, and my aunt Evelyn was with her. Aunt Evelyn was sixty-eight years old. They picked peaches. Nancy was in a four-speed truck on the floor. I was away preaching at a youth camp. Nancy was on a road she'd never been on before, and it had a grade that went uphill a little bit. And going up the hill, you could not see that there's a paved road in front of you. The experts say she's going somewhere around 25, 28 miles an hour. There's no stop sign. The grass has grown up as high as the windows. Nancy had no idea that there's a paved road there. Another truck, a work truck, Kind of has the tools and all the way around the back and full of tools. It's heavy. He was going west. Nancy was going south. And they met in that intersection. They say he was going somewhere between 63, 68 miles an hour. And they met. The impact was so violent when it went like this. Just pushed Nancy's truck this way. And the back of his truck slammed into the back of her truck. And it shot her truck up the, up the old highway and it went down into a ditch somewhere around 120 feet or so. His truck bounced off of hers and he went through a telephone pole and through a fence and out into a pasture. The impact was so violent and so powerful at that very moment. And Evelyn, none of them had on seat belts, and Evelyn came across the front of the cab and her sternum, her chest hit the steering wheel of the 1971 Ford, and it broke the steering wheel off at the at the dashboard at the column. Just snapped it. It broke her sternum. Angie was uh, straddling the uh, gear shift. I'm sorry, Becky was straddling the gear shift, and Becky uh, tore her thigh muscle there, and uh, she got some stitches in her head. Angie was between Becky and Aunt Evelyn, and she got a couple stitches, but she her face hit, the, hit something we don't know what, and she had a black eye for six months. Nancy, the driver, happened so fast, unbelievable, that somehow her body got out of the, out of the truck. And it got in between the two trucks. And when this truck slammed into Nancy's truck, it had her head between there and it shot her out like a, like a catapult. She hit the pavement and she went down the pavement. She drug, she slid down the pavement so much it pulled a lot of this meat off the back of her head and pulled it up. She cut her forehead across the front. But here's what was worse. Her head got between the two trucks 
and she crushed her skull on the left side here. The reason we know she's between the two trucks because the color of paint they found in her brain is the color of the other truck. Nancy lay on the side of the road. By God's providence and goodness, a lady in a van came up right after the accident happened. Angie and Becky said that Aunt Evelyn slid down into the floor of the truck and they thought she was dead. They slid out of the truck and they started looking for their mother. And they said she was laying across the road and you didn't know who she was except her clothes because she was so covered with blood. And God's providence, this lady stopped, got out of her van and said, girls, don't, don't cross the road. Don't cross the road. And she brought them around and they stood by the back of her van. The man in the truck had had some training and he came to Nancy and he said that she was swallowing her tongue. He got some device and was trying to hold her tongue down to keep her from swallowing it. They didn't have cell phones then. He called on the radio and a helicopter came and picked up Aunt Evelyn. She survived. She was in ICU for quite a while, but she's fine. And then Nancy, they took her to a small hospital in Okmulgee, Oklahoma. Some of you are old enough. Some of you have no idea they used to do this. But in the hospital, they had these white sheet curtains that they would pull to divide you from the other people in the emergency room. Angie was in one cubicle, Becky in another cubicle, and their mother was in another. And the girls heard them say, her her bone is crushed in her head. We can't do this. We're going to have to take her to Tulsa. And two little girls, nine and ten, actually Angie just turned 11. They sat in the emergency room in the waiting area the behind the curtains, and they heard their mama taken away. Angie and Becky knew one phone number, our neighbor. They kept calling it, and the accident happened somewhere around 10 o'clock in the morning, 10.30. In the after, early afternoon, the neighbors came and picked up the girls. I was in Kansas preaching, had no idea. I was going to go to Oklahoma City, and I did. Nancy and the girls were supposed to meet me in Oklahoma City, and I'm going to preach a youth rally that night. On the next day, we were going to drive to South Texas to Austin, and I was going to candidate to be a pastor of a church down there. Of course, we never made it. When I got to Mom and Dad's house, they told me Nancy's been in a horrible accident. I need to go up there. When I got to the hospital, several people were there and were grateful. They were praying for us. I walked down this big, wide hallway, and a doctor was coming toward me, and we were passing each other, and he says, Are you McCracken? I said, Yes, I am. He said, I'm the doctor, and he tells me his name. He said, I did the surgery on your wife. So he begins to tell me that he cleaned it all up, and he feels like he got a whole lot out, all the dirt and all that. He said, but there's a problem. Her brainstem's severed, or it's bruised, and we won't know. For three days, we'll do a test and see if she's brain dead. Well, you know, she's not. Nancy was in a deep coma for over 50 days. When she woke up, She'd had pneumonia. She has a trach. She didn't know she was married. She didn't know her dad was dead. She didn't know she had two children. And God in his kindness allowed her to her memory to come back slowly, and she learned things. The last two weeks being in the hospital, she got what they called tremors, and she began to shake like this. They were trying to teach her to walk, trying to teach her to eat with a spoon, a fork, trying to help her to write, and... Anyway, she shook so violently, she couldn't write, she couldn't eat, she couldn't walk. We had to tie her in the wheelchair because she would bounce out. And the doctor did say these tremors will subside over time. And uh, anyway, as Nancy got better, because when she came home from the hospital, she was, in my brain, I'll tell you that she behaved something like a three-year-old. She could walk if I held her arms and I walked backwards and she would walk like this. And we could get her to the bedroom or in a wheelchair or to the bathroom. So she's in the hospital for almost five months. 
in a wheelchair for a year. And her brain is coming back slowly. There's all kinds of stories to tell. But I'll just say it like this. I was running in the sand. They said, we don't know how much better Nancy will get mentally. And I'm running in the sand. I have to give her a bath. I have to dress her. First time I took her to church after she came home. Her hair was about this long and sticking straight up. She not just stick straight up. I didn't try to brush her hair or anything, but I got her dressed, which was weird. Because I did not know there was something called knee-high hose. I never knew that. I bought her hose several times. They're in a little silver egg. That's what I bought. You know when you open the egg, they're only this big? You should see a man try to put those on a woman. It would have made a great video. It was incredible. But I did it. We wrestled all over the bed. <laughs> no one told me, uh, you can get knee highs. <laughs> and I put her makeup on. I did the best I could. We got to church and the ladies go, Brother Dave, did you put the makeup on her? Yeah. Never do it again. Never. It'd be better for her to have no makeup. She is not a clown. She looks happy to me. Horrible. Nancy kept getting better and better. They call it lighter. And I'm so grateful she did. That's running in the sand. Our oldest daughter needed her first bra when her mama was in the rehab. I took her to Sears. And this nice lady says, what are y'all looking for? She needs a bra. Oh, honey, I'll help you. And my daughter still has nightmares about that lady helping her. <laughs> and she is still mad at me for making her do that. I didn't know what to do. All kinds of stuff happened. Two little girls didn't even know it. They're in the sand too. How long does it last? I don't know. Nancy kept getting better. I'm grateful. She was in a wheelchair for a year and then she was kind of on a scooter and a walker and she's gotten better and better ever since. I'm thankful. That was nineteen eighty eight. In 1992, she's in another car wreck. Her face went through the windshield. It cut her left eyelid off. Her left eye ruptured. It's called running in the sand. I was driving. It's my fault. 1993, she had a lump on her breast. They said it's breast cancer, and they did the surgery in 1994. She took chemotherapy. All I'm telling you is it's like running in the sand. My grandson is 10 years old. When he was four, six years ago in August, so just last month, six years ago, he was four, we found out that he'd been molested all summer long by a 14-year-old boy. He was three, he turned four in July, and for three months, better rip your heart out. That's like running in the sand. My daughter, my son-in-law, me and Nancy, what do we do? The long story is, or short story is, the fellow, the 14-year-old, he turned 15. They finally went to court. It happened in August. He didn't go to court till February. 
and the judge found him guilty and said he had to do some kind of go to a psychologist until the psychologist said, you don't have to come anymore. My daughter worked at the school and the boy, 14-year-old boy's parents worked at the school. See, my grandson and granddaughter would go to the school in the summer while their mom and dad were working and ride their little scooters on this big sidewalk. And my grandson, he's four years old. He would follow the, the workers around, and they gave him a little hard hat and a hammer and a screwdriver and follow him around. But that 14-year-old boy was there too. And we had no idea that he said, hey, come here, come here, let's, let's go do the They go play. My daughter had to go to work, and her his parents went to work the same place. Her daughter called us when she found out in August and she's just beside herself on the phone and and trying to tell us we do come home during that time. And so we got from August all the way to Christmas time. We've been at home several times and we're worried about the boy and they've done some counseling with him. They think he's okay and so on. There's all kinds of understory about this, but I just want to get to this part. In February, I was preaching in the Bay Area of California. That morning, or that afternoon, my daughter called me crying, bawling on the phone again. And, Dad, I can't take it anymore. She's crying. I said, She said, I see them every day. I see them every day. I'm reminded of it every day, and I can't take it anymore. She's heartbroken. I said, her, you want to quit? I don't know what to do. So I have a series of sermons that I preached on bitterness. And I began to talk to her about bitterness. You can't be bitter, honey. If you stay bitter, it will destroy your relationship between you and God. In fact, it will destroy your relationship between you and your husband. It will destroy your relationship between you and your son. And, of course, between you and those people. You can't stay bitter, honey. That very night, God is so good. That very night, a lady got up with a harp, had a microphone there, and she's playing the harp, and she sings a song I've never heard before. I'm thinking, this is incredible. This is amazing. It talks about all the things God could have done. It He could have let it happen different, but he didn't. And I'm going to read you a couple passages, a couple of stanzas of it. Then I'm going to read you the letter my daughter wrote to the family. Then I have another comment. I'm going to be finished, except we are going to turn to Romans 8 when I get to the finish. Okay, just a minute. It's not very long from now. A man named Stephen Nichols, you can look it up on YouTube. It's spelled with a C-H-O-L-S. His Stephen is T-H-P-E-P-H. Stephen Nichols pastors in Sacramento, California. He has a large family. He has two children with special needs. They travel and sing sometimes. He writes songs. He wrote this song. When the lady got done singing, it's my turn to get up to preach, and I asked her, did you write that song? No. Do you know who wrote it? She said, yes. I said, could you give it to me after church? She said, yes. After church, I got it, downloaded it. They showed me how. I sent it to my daughter. Here's part of the song. The name of it is God Wanted It That Way. If God wanted it that way, Daniel would have never known the lion's den. Joseph would have had the throne without the prison. And David would have never known Saul's jealousy. And Job would have never lost his family. Stephen would have never been stoned. And the beatings of Paul would have never been known. But God wanted it that way. Every trial, every test was only for the best. It was always in his plan, though it may, though we may not understand. As the potter molds the clay, God just wanted it that way. If God would have wanted it, if God had wanted it that way, no one would have never, no one have never known the trail of blood. And Tyndale would have the word of God completed. Preachers would have never heard their children cry as they walked alone to the stake to die. 
Nero would have never had the throne. Colosseums of Rome would have never been known. But God wanted it that way. Every trial, every test was only for the best. It was always in his plan, though we may not understand as the potter molds the clay. God just wanted it that way. There's another stanza, but that's enough for now. Let me do this. I've read those stanzas to people before, and I've had people come up to me and say, I don't believe God wanted it that way. I don't believe it. And I would say to them, you're exactly right. God doesn't want anyone ever to be molested. He doesn't want anyone to burn at the stake. But sin happens. And God has given humanity liberty, freedom, and they make choice to sin. And men are wicked. And wickedness is going to happen. Could God have kept my grandson from being molested? Absolutely. My grandson could have died before he ever met that boy. And he would never, we would never know the pain. Or that other boy could have been, is everybody with me? Nancy could have gone down, that, that, that other truck could have gone a different day or a different hour down that road. Is everybody with me? Does God know what's happening? Yeah. Does he plan for people to be wicked? No. Does wickedness happen? Yes. Does wickedness happen to good people? Yes, yes, yes. It happens. But, but, but Brother Dave, you told us we're supposed to lay aside every weight. And when we're running in the sand, we don't get to lay it. We don't get to, we don't get to get out. We don't get to lay it aside. Yes, we do. Here's how we do it. God, I know that you know I'm in the sand. And I'm not here. Watch. I'm not going to let this sand make me stop. I'm going to stay in the race until I see Jesus. No matter how much and how long I'm in the sand. A couple of years ago, I told this sermon in Ohio. On Sunday, a girl came that looked to be about 28 or 30. Her countenance was sad and broken. I met her, shook her hand. That's it. But I could just tell she's wounded or something. That night, she came back. I was glad she did. She came back Monday night, and she heard this sermon I'm preaching right now. She was there. On Tuesday, a lady that works with her, a lady that got her to come to church, came to church early on Tuesday night. Said, "Brother Dave, Brother Dave, I got to tell you about Wendy. Wendy is the girl." Said, "Today she came to she came to work. She's smiling." She's happy. She's inviting everybody at work to come to church tonight. She wants everybody to be here. She said, God changed her last night. And when Wendy came to church that night, before church, she came up to me. Her countenance is totally different. And she, she shook my hand and grabbed my neck and hugged. And she said these words. Last night, I got out of the sand. You know what her sand was? Three months earlier, her 16-year-old daughter committed suicide. I don't know if I'd ever get out of the sand. But she hugged me and said, thank you. I got out of the sand. My daughter wrote this note to the mom and dad of the 14-year-old boy that she works with. She's given me permission. She's told me, yes, I want you to tell people this. She said, first of all, I want to tell you, I'm sorry. I had allowed Satan to plant seeds of bitterness in my heart. God started working on my heart on Wednesday afternoon. I called my dad who preached to me his series on forgiveness and bitterness. Halfway through it, I thought, why did I call him? However, he was right, and I needed it. I could not understand why God allowed for it to happen. I could not understand why God is making it harder for me having to see you and be reminded of it every day. Then I realized something. I'm human. I'm never going to understand it all. 
I just need to trust God and carry on. The Lord will take care of my feelings and restore healing. His grace and peace is sufficient. And then she has capital letters, if we allow it to be. That was the main point of my sermon. It's there. Grace is available, but you have to receive it. She said, we serve the Almighty. Well, wait a minute. Then something amazing happened today. I had a personal revival. God used this song to help me see everything in a different view. We serve the Almighty. He could have chosen not to let this happen. But somehow in his plan, long before you had your son or we had our son, nothing is a mystery to the creator. We may never know why, but we do know it's because he wanted it that way. When I understood that, it changed everything. She said, you all are walking in harder shoes than we are. I pray I never know what it's like. I've been praying for you and will continue to do so. Please know that we have forgiven your son. And I know that God will use this for his good. I pray this song will be a blessing to you too. Will you turn to Romans 8? I'll show you what I'm talking about. Before I read, do you know who Corey Ten Boom is? Are you aware of her? You know, I've heard her name since I was in college. I was in college in 1973. I've heard her name since. I've never read the book, Hiding Place. Never saw the movie, Hiding Place. Never saw it. Six months ago, Nancy and I listened to the book. We drive all over the place. We listened to the book on audio. Incredible. Corey Tim Boone was in a gulag in a prison camp for the Jewish people. She's not Jewish, but she protected Jews, and they treated her horrible too. Her sister Betsy died there. Her dad died there. Listen to what Corey Tim Boone said after she gets out of prison camp. Every experience God gives us, every person he puts in our lives, is the perfect preparation for a future only he can see. Incredible, isn't it? Every person, every experience you've had, God knows how he's preparing you for the future. If you're in the sand, he's preparing you for a future that only he can see. Romans 8, look at it. Verse number 28, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are who, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Look up here, please. So we're going to read. We know that all things work together for good. You're in the sand right now. I'm sorry. I hate it. I don't want you to be in the sand. But friend, you and I somehow, someday, have got to believe that our coach knows we're in the sand. He knows exactly where we are. He knows how wicked, how painful, how horrible the event, how the sand is. He knows. He's not blind to it. He knows where we are. What do we do? We trust him. The enemy would have us quit. Our flesh would have us quit. Sometimes our family, our friends would have us quit. Job's wife said, curse God and die. But what we're going to do is say, God, I hate the sand. You can say it. You can tell him, I hate this. I don't like it. Because if you don't say that, he already knows you don't like it. You're not faking him out. Say, I don't like this. I don't like my wife being a cripple. I don't like bathing her and changing. 
I don't like my grandson. I don't like that at all. It's okay to tell him he already knows. But I'm going to do this. God, I'm not going to let this keep me from loving and following you. I'm going to lay this sand aside even though I'm in the middle of it. And I'm going to run until I see Jesus. Amen? You know what you got to do? You got to make that decision before it ever happens. Because sand is coming. I'm sorry. It's part of living. But I'd much rather, if I'm going to run in the sand, I'd rather run with Jesus. You know the story. You've, you've heard the little piece of poetry that says, we were walking along with God and I saw footprints in the sand. And I said, I thought you would always stay with me. When the worst times happen, there's only one set of prints. Why did you leave? And he said, oh, honey, I did not leave. That's when I carried you. And the only reason that we can make it through the sand sometimes, he has to carry. Do you trust him? Do you trust him? All things work together. We're good. I'm going to ask you to stand with me. Thank you for listening. I'd like to pray with you. Our great God, I sure do love you. I'm overwhelmed that you love me so much. And God, when I learn that in the sand, in the difficulties and the heartbreak, you know where I am. You know why I'm there. And you know how, how you're going to use this in my life. So God, thank you.